Good morning. It's lovely to see you all. It's lovely to be here. Uh, Thanks for being here. We actually are going to be beginning a new series looking at the book of John. This is going to take us all the way through term one. So we're kind of in the lead up to Easter, uh, through Easter and uh, post-Easter, we'll be looking at some post-resurrection appearances as recorded by John. So we're going to be spending a bit of time in John. So I wanted to help set up and frame the next 10 or so weeks uh, to get us uh, our heads around what John is about and some of the things that you might come across as we start looking at this pretty incredible story of this pretty incredible person. Uh, to help help us, I have a little bit of an activity which might get us into uh, the, the mindset in which John writes and some of the, the tools that he uses. And so in a moment, uh, I'm going to put a sentence on the screen. Uh, I I don't want you to read out loud, but I want you to read that sentence in your mind, and then I'm going to get a show of hands to see how you read that sentence. I think it'll make sense in a moment, might not make sense now. Darren? So read that in your mind. All right. Put your hand up if you read it like this. Only two. Put your hand if you read it like this. Wow, lots of tears, not many tears. Same word. Interesting that we, uh, we interpret it differently. How about the next one? Uh, thanks, Darren. Hmm. Put your hand up if you interpret it like this. It's majority, all right? Put your hand if you interpret it like this. Yeah, okay, there you go. Uh, last one. Laura doesn't think this one's going to work. She said, that's not going to work. No one's going to think of there's two meanings to that. Uh, put your hand up if you think it was this. Somebody, uh, put your hand up if you thought this. <laughs> there was one. There was one. Grant's with me. Thank you, Grant. Somebody who's cleaning up some lead. Thank you. I saw it was dangerous, so I took the lead. <laughs> lead paint that works, right? It's the same word. Uh, thanks, Darren. Uh, it's interesting, right? They, we saw these three sentences, and it was all based upon a single word which had a bit of an ambiguous meaning. Uh, it could, in different contexts, it could mean something different. Uh, normally, in English, we try and give a bit of context. Uh, we try and avoid exactly what we just did, where we're kind of scratching our heads going, I actually don't know how I'm supposed to be reading this. Uh, And Greek has some words that are very similar to this. Uh, The challenge in translating the New Testament, which was written in Greek, is that sometimes you come across words like that where there could be multiple meanings. And trying to discern from the context and trying to discern from the passage what the right English word to use can be a little bit of uh, a challenge. And then you add somebody like the writer of the Gospel of John... Uh, to the mix, who deliberately uses words with ambiguous meanings. He deliberately does this as kind of a choice in his writing because he wants sometimes the reader to understand the word in multiple contexts. He's actually deliberately choosing a word that could have two meanings to kind of almost say both of those meanings rather than just one. Uh, hopefully, as we get a bit further into this uh, and we look at some examples of this, it will become clearer. 
Uh, I have a deep affection for the Gospel of John. Uh, I really love uh, this Gospel. It was uh, the Gospel that when I was at Bible college, I actually got a, to study in depth. Uh, and I got to spend a lot of time in the book of John. Uh, I was with my, my favorite Bible college lecturer, uh, who was a very interesting man, uh, and he, he really opened it up for me. Uh, and St. Augustine has a saying uh, about the, the Gospel of John, which I think I really experienced when I was in a Bible, uh, Bible college, and he said, John's Gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. Deep enough for the theologians to be able to swim out into its depths and never touch the bottom, but shallow enough and safe enough for those that are infants to be able to come and explore and play in the waters of this book. Uh, and John's a bit of a different gospel. So uh, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all record the story of Jesus' life. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to get, I guess, lumped together. Uh, they sometimes are called the synoptic Gospels. Uh, they're called the synoptic because essentially uh, they note many of the same accounts of Christ. They share the same order generally uh, with fairly similar wording. Uh, with similar perspectives on Jesus' ministry. Uh, the word synoptic means able to be seen together. They share about 90% of the material is across Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, however, is 90% unique. There's stories in the book of John that you don't find in any of the other Gospels. There's a bit of a different order, in the Gospel of John, we, we hold that Jesus' ministry took place over about three or four years, and we primarily think that because John records three different times Jesus attends Passover, whereas all the other Gospels, if you're just reading the synoptics, you could almost think that this ministry happened within a 12-month period because they only record Jesus attending Passover at the very end of his ministry. Uh, and so John brings some very unique things to the story of Jesus. And it's because John has a unique uh, purpose. He has an intention, right? He's got a purpose of what he's trying to do. And so the order is going to be slightly different. He's going to record slightly different things because he has a very set intention. Uh, fortunately for us, we don't have to kind of guess what this intention is. Uh, towards the end of the gospel, John himself tells us, uh, in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, it should come up on the screen. Uh, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The theme... John's purpose, the reason why he's writing this account, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And by believing in that, you would have life in his name. But again here, even kind of at that beginning bit, but these are in that you may believe, you've got an ambiguous word that's used for believe. 
uh, believe could be correctly interpreted as uh, that you might continue to believe. That would be a very accurate interpretation of the Greek word that John uses for belief, that you would continue in belief. Uh, but just as equally accurate would be that you might come to believe. John wants you to know that this book that he's writing is that you might come to believe or that you might continue to believe that Jesus Christ. This book is for those who are Jesus' followers and it's for those who are not Jesus' followers. Those who don't have faith. Those who want to know a bit more about who this Jesus guy is. That they might come to believe and have life in Jesus' name. That gives you a bit of a big picture overview of the purpose of John. The fact that he is writing with this specific intention uh, and focus in mind. So let's get into, uh, thanks Darren, the passage that uh, Kylie read out for us. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 18. Uh, this little, oh, you can go back. We'll come to that later. Can you go black? It's all good. There we go. Uh, this section that was read out for us is a little bit like uh, an introduction to the book as a whole. Uh, I, I read one commentary that said it's kind of like a foyer. Kind of when you go into someone's house, you go into their foyer, it's kind of the place that you'd welcome people. Um, but the point of this kind of thing is also to give us a bit of a feel of what's to come. I haven't walked into too many people's foyers and gone, oh, I get an idea of what the bathroom's going to be like by being in the foyer. Or the kitchen. Like, that just doesn't happen. But that's kind of more the point of what's happening in John 1, 1 to 18. It's actually almost a bit more like uh, an experience that Laura and I had when we were kind of newly married, uh, pre-kids. Uh, we went to a restaurant. <laughs> I know, crazy girl. Um, uh, we went out and we went to this restaurant. It's a bit of a fancy restaurant because uh, they didn't have a menu. You can always tell something's fancy if they don't have a menu. Uh, so they didn't have a menu. Uh, essentially what you did is you sat down and they brought you uh, a couple of spoons. And so before you had your entree, they brought you these two kind of uh, spoons with this combination of flavours on each spoon. And so you would take that spoon full of flavours in your mouth and you would kind of eat it, and you think, oh, I like that, or I don't like that, and then you take the other one, and they say, which of those flavours did you prefer? And you're like, oh, I think I prefer this spoon, or I prefer that one. And then they would go and make you your meal based upon the flavours that you picked. They would kind of then kind of use that as the base, and they would kind of incorporate all sorts of things. I remember for dessert, I had a, a white chocolate and pink peppercorn ice cream based on the flavours that I picked. It was really interesting. It was really creative. And I think that's probably a bit more of what John 1, 1 to 18 is like. It's giving us a taste. It's giving us a little taster of the flavours that we're going to experience in a more fuller capacity as we start looking at the rest of this story. And so it's going to introduce to us some of the key themes that we're going to see explored. Light. Life. Rejection of the word. The world. Who God's true children are and his glory. These are going to be some of the key things that will be explored as John writes his gospel. He's kind of putting it out at the beginning. This is what it's about. This is what this story is going to be about. Verse 1 
starts in a very similar way, particularly for those who are familiar uh, with the Old Testament. It starts with the term, in the beginning. It's reminiscing or reminding us of Genesis chapter 1. And the word beginning here probably could more literally be translated as, as origin, in the origin in the origin of all things. This isn't just a story about that starting at the beginning, once upon a time. What John's trying to say is, this is a story about the originator. In the origin, in the beginning, was the word. Already from the start, we get the picture that the word is intimately linked with the originator. And in case we were any doubt, John goes even further... Uh, and when he says uh, that the word was God and that the word was with God. Now, this has caused this little very small verse, John chapter 1, verse 1, has caused uh, some pretty interesting discussion throughout history. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, have a very different interpretation of this verse, which almost leads them to, to separate themselves from Orthodox Christian faith. Uh, they read this verse as saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. The Word was a God, and therefore, as they view this Word, who we're going to find out later is Jesus, they somehow view this as, as a lower or less divine than the Father. And so they have this hierarchy of the Father, then beneath the Father is the Son, who is a God, and beneath the Son is the Spirit, who is again a lower God. Now we don't believe that. They make that clear. It's not what I'm saying the Christian faith believes. We believe that God is three in one, and that he is equal in Father, Son, and Spirit. That as you kind of view one, you're almost drawn to the others as being of equal substance, equal worth. There's no hierarchy in the Godhead. I remember I had a very interesting conversation with some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, one day. It doesn't normally happen to me. They kind of turned up at our house on a Sunday uh, at lunch and they kind of were talking and they said, so what do you do? And I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor at a church. Uh, and I thought, that's probably going to be the end of the conversation, right? If you've turned up to somebody's house and you're looking to try and convert some people, and they're like, I'm a pastor at a church, uh, I don't know if I would have seen that as a worthwhile investment of my time. Uh, I must have seen open or willing to engage with them, because I had about a half an hour conversation with them after this point, uh, which was a very fascinating conversation. Because I think it sort of went something along the lines of, oh, well, do you know God's personal name? I think they were angling for Jehovah. Uh, it's not the answer that I gave them, unfortunately. I said, yes, it's Jesus. Uh, and they were a bit taken aback. Uh, uh, I think they were kind of expecting maybe a, a Yahweh or, or Jehovah, but I just went straight for Jesus. Uh, the passage that Kylie read out from Colossians makes it clear. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God in flesh. Uh, and so after this, we kind of got corking, and eventually, of course, uh, this verse comes up, John 1, chapter 1. Well, doesn't it say that uh, Jesus, as the Word, was a God? Uh, and kind of we got into this conversation. Um, 
I don't know how fruitful it was. I don't know if I mean, we, we had the conversation. Um, but basically, in the Greek, there are a lot of words that could be used. Well, there's another word that could be used if John was trying to say that the word was simply divine, was a God, uh, could have used a different construction of the word that he uses. He very much uses the, the God, Lord kind of title for the word, where there is a different word which could have been used for, um, for divine or a God. Uh, in addition, they kind of say, well, there's actually no, uh, there's no definite article before God, the, word, the, the, the Greek word for God. And, and they're right, there isn't. But it's not like that John doesn't have a tendency to do this. Later on in John, uh, the definite article is just the. So if we're saying that the word is God, uh, we're kind of saying that he, the God. Like, so we're kind of saying it's, he's the God, not a God. Uh, and in John chapter 1, verse 49, just very, a bit later on in what we've read, uh, it talks about Nathanael, who's met Jesus. And uh, Nathanael says, uh, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Uh, there's no definite article before king either, but we say the king because we understand the context. And so it, it seems like it's a, a wrong interpretation of this verse for a few different reasons. I believe that John has awareness of the triune God. He wants us to see that Jesus is God, but that he's also with God. Because he is seeking to communicate to us, the reader, God's perfect, harmonious, pre-existing relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit within the Godhead. As you read through the Bible, if nothing else, you get the picture that God is different to us and he is complex. And I think John's able to put his finger on it in this single verse. The word was God and the word was with God. It's interesting, though, that so far I've talked a lot about Jesus without actually using his name. It's all been in the context of the word which is an interesting way to describe, except again, this is another time where, where John's trying to pick up on a, a, a word which people understand in some different contexts. He's using the term logos, which in Greek wisdom, the logos was the creating force of everything. In Greek philosophy, the word, the logos, had a role in creating everything. Everything was created through the logos, the word. And so that's how Greek philosophers understood things. And yet in the Old Testament, you get this idea of God communicating, creating, redeeming through his word. I've been reading through the book of Ezekiel, and I've been struck by the amount of times that Ezekiel goes to speak and he says, the word of the Lord came to me. He wants to make it clear as the prophet, that what he's coming and what he's bringing, the message that he has, is not his message. It's God's message. A word of the Lord came to me. And I think that's kind of, in essence, kind of the, the word that we're getting here. In its simple form, the word can be translated as, as message. Sometimes we can talk about a word on a page, or we can talk about a word from somebody. 
but we can tend to get from the context what it's talking about. It's like, it's like the joke about the funeral where the pastor stands up and asks if anybody would like to bring a word uh, and uh, a gentleman stands up, comes to the front, uh, well known to the family, uh, gets to the, to the pulpit and says, plethora. And the widow says, thank you, that means a lot. Uh, it's that, it, it, the, the joke hinges on it's the wrong interpretation of the word word there. Like, does anyone want to bring a word? We get from the context. It's not like come up and say a single word. It's a message. Does anyone have a message? And that's the essence of the word here. This is God's message. This is God in flesh coming into our world. God intends that the whole of his gospel be read in the light of this verse, that the deeds and the words of Jesus are seen as God's message, as the words and the deeds of God himself. We're getting this introduction to this story, this story about the word who was with the originator, at the origin of all things, who was God and was with God, who is linked with the creating force even in Greek philosophy. We're getting this picture that this word is pretty special. And it continues, and it wants us to see very clearly that this word is Jesus. It's talking about light and life that the word brings. It's talking about being able to be God's children. It's talking about how this word is rejected by those that are his own. It's talking about glory and what this word truly deserves. And it's interesting that people actually see that in this short passage, there's almost a, a bit of a poetic feel, not a, an English poetry, which, uh, as we understand it, is very linear and kind of builds towards a point and kind of things build upon the poem. Uh, Hebrew poetry uh, is a bit different, particularly in the fact that they tend to use like matching statements, like a chiasm, which kind of comes to a point. And so they'll have matching statements to help highlight that the key thing is actually in the center. The very core of this message, the very core of the poem, the very core of what the author wants you to understand and see is not found at the end. It's actually found in the middle of this. And, and they think that uh, John 1 has got a bit of a feel to that, this, this chiasm. And again, when we think of poetry, we think it's got to have like equal length of words. Hebrew doesn't really follow those same rules. So this is the, the way people have understood uh, the chiasm. So kind of you've got the word as theos with God, and that then matches up with verse 18. Uh, you've got creation came through the word, verse 3, verse 17, and you kind of got all these things matching up in sort of themes. And it's doing this, and, and what I was reading was suggesting that actually what it's trying to do is throw its emphasis and trying to help us to see that the key thing, the key thing to take away from this section of scripture is the middle. The center of this poetic section is verse 12b. He gave authority 
to become children of God. Or as the NFI says, he gave them the right to become children of God. The originator, uh, the originator of the word, the creating force of our world, true light, true life, came into the world so that some may be called the children of God. That's the point of John's gospel. This is, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that me and you could be reconciled with God. This story that we are going to read is not something that just simply happened almost 2,000 years ago. It is something that happened. This is a true story. But this is a story about how God has reached into our world as the creating force to give life and light, to be able to give us the ability to become children of God, to reconcile ourselves with him. That's what this book, the story about here, preached on for the rest of the term is about. This is the word. This is God in flesh who stepped into our world so that me and you might be reconciled with God and might be able to call ourselves his children. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of John. We thank you for the time we get to spend looking at the story of the word become flesh, of Jesus as he steps into our world, as he shows us what you are like, as he teaches who you are and how much you love us, as he actually steps into our world to die for us, to be glorified and raised up so that we might have life so that we might be able to be your children. Be with us this term as we come each week to look at a new part of this story, to hear more about what you have done, that we might come to believe or continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Amen.